Have you ever watched a really great movie and you were like, man, this is awesome, only to be disappointed by the ending? Maybe the ending just ruined it for you. Maybe the, maybe the greatest letdown of all letdowns uh, is in that classic movie Titanic, okay? I guess historically, we knew how it had to end. I mean, we knew the ship was going to end at the bottom of the Atlantic. But the one thing about the movie that had everyone all up in arms... Uh, also, this is a spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie, but we all know that Jack and Rose could have both fit on that door, okay? That door was big enough for both of them to float on and survive. We all know Rose was just being selfish and they could have figured it out. Uh, in fact, the show, if you remember the show Mythbusters, they actually proved that Jack and Rose could have both survived. It's, it's plausible that Jack and Rose could have both stayed afloat on the board and survived hypothermia just long enough to be rescued, but only if they would have thought to take Rose's life jacket and put it underneath the board to help its buoyancy. So Rose had a life jacket and the door, and poor Jack is just, you know, he's just out there. Anyways, great movie, terrible ending. So here we are, we're in the fifth week of this sermon series on the name, and we've been looking at the nature and the character of God. Remember, this scripture that we look at in Exodus chapter 34, it's God himself, it's Yahweh speaking to us, and he self-discloses. He tells us who he is. He tells us what he's like. And we've read this same verse over and over again now for five weeks. And maybe you think when God describes himself, oh man, this is great. This is awesome. It's wonderful. But that last part, the ending part, like the Titanic, you're not so sure about it. I mean, we love the part where God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving all of our transgression, iniquity, and sin. But that last part doesn't sound so great. <laughs> Where it says Yahweh, he doesn't clear the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. I mean, yikes. <laughs> so, seems like a bad ending, but I promise you, this ending will not disappoint. It's not like the Titanic. These are actually good things about God, not bad things. So let's read our text that we've been in for the past few weeks. It says this, Exodus 34, 5 through 8. It says, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Today, we're going to look at the last part of this scripture, and we're just going to walk through it line by line, starting with this first line that says, he keeps steadfast love for thousands. Okay, remember last week we spoke on the concept of steadfast love. In Hebrew, the word chesed is the word for steadfast love. It's connected to covenant loyalty. It means that when God makes a promise or he enters into an agreement with us, that he sticks to his promises. 
Hesed is the combination of kind of three concepts of loyalty, love, and generosity. This is who God is. Even though he has no needs and we can never repay him, yet he gives us his promises and he keeps those promises. And he doesn't just keep those promises. This says that he actually watches over those promises. It says keeping steadfast love for thousands. You see, in the Hebrew, it's that word keep is the Hebrew word natsar, which means to keep guard. Yahweh stands guard or keeps vigil over his promises. He keeps vigil over the things he said he would do. He's watching over his word, the scriptures say, to perform it. You know, over the past couple of weeks, the whole world seemingly uh, was watching when Queen Elizabeth II, when she died. And I was kind of mesmerized by the whole ordeal. One of the things that really struck me was the guards and even the royal family that stood vigil over her coffin 24 hours a day. Uh, you know, she died in Scotland, right, Balmoral Castle. And while she was there, while she lie in state in Scotland, that the royal company of archers stood vigil over her for 24 hours. And, and, and it's, you can go back and look at this. It's pretty cool. It's, you have four people that stand on the four corners of the coffin. Their heads are kind of tilted down and they're serious. And they are keeping vigil over Queen Elizabeth's body. You know, then they transported her body back to Westminster Hall back in London. And she lay in state for five days from September 14th to the 19th. And her coffin was guarded by members of both the sovereign's bodyguard and the household division for 24 hours a day, five days a week, 24 hours a day that they were standing there watching vigil, holding guard over her body. And it was neat. Even there was a time when King Charles held vigil over her, and even the grandchildren came and did a, a shift of watching vigil over her. And it's just interesting. You see how focused and how intent every person is as they're watching over the queen. And I just I think it was so interesting that wherever she went from Balmoral Castle in Scotland to where she passed to back to Buckingham Palace, she was never left unattended. Someone was always watching over her and keeping guard. And this is what the scripture says about Yahweh, that just like people watching vigil over Queen Elizabeth's body, Yahweh is watching over his promises that he's made, his covenants that he's made to us. And he is keeping guard and showing steadfast love for thousands of generations. Yahweh is Israel's keeper. Yahweh is your keeper today. Those who guarded Queen Elizabeth, they had to take shifts because they needed to rest. They needed to sleep. Uh, even one of the guards actually fell out and passed out while watching Queen Elizabeth. You know, people have to take a day off. But I'm the one who watches over Israel, the one who watches over you, the one who watches over his promises, he never takes a day off. He never sleeps. You might be in a dark season right now. Now, today, you might be in such a dark season. It's like you can't see your hand in front of your face, but there in the dark with you, though you may not be able to see him, one day you will see that there was one in the dark keeping watch over you. Psalm 121, it tells us about our keeper. Listen, it says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth 
He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Look, Yahweh is watching over his promises today for thousands of generations. And you know, it's, it's interesting. I was actually talking with uh, Dr. Jeremy Stevens, who comes to our church, and we were talking about this concept of Yahweh keeping his promises for thousands and watching over his promises. And you know, it's interesting if you go back all the way to the book of Genesis, at the very beginning, at the fall, a promise is made that the one who has caused the downfall, the serpent, there is going to be an offspring that comes from Eve. And Eve's offspring will crush the head of that serpent. But the bruise of the offspring, uh, the, the, will, his heel will be bruised. And you think about that promise that was made all the way back in Genesis that the serpent is going to be defeated, that evil is going to have its final day and its final say. And it, when you read the scriptures, man, it looks like there are times when evil is just rampant, when wickedness is terrible. There's so much like about humanity in the scriptures that it just shows us how evil and wicked and there's all sorts of terrible things that happen. But in the midst of the wickedness and the nastiness, every now and again, what you'll see is beauty and holiness and promise. And, and somehow Yahweh is still watching over his word to perform it. He made a promise back in Genesis chapter 3 about evil being defeated. And we, and we see God working his plan all the way through the scriptures until we get to that day when Jesus, the Christ child, is born. And he lives his life and he dies crushing and defeating Satan and he lives and he right and he's rose again and he's victorious and we just see Yahweh watching over his promises to perform it over thousands of years and generations God's promises are going to outlast the wickedness of this world he is so so good so the first line is that he is showing steadfast love to a thousands the next is that he forgives. He's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It says that Yahweh is forgiving. Remember, this is describing his character. It doesn't simply say that from time to time Yahweh forgives. No, it says that the nature of who he is, what comes from his being, his essence, he is one that forgives. He's forgiving. He wants to carry away and release us from all the things that plague us, our wrongdoings. I want you to notice that Yahweh forgives three things in the scripture. You know, the Bible has three words that it regularly uses to describe our fallen nature as humans. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the reality of who we are. It doesn't sugarcoat the fact that we were made in God's image, but man, we have really failed at living up to that image. And so they, these three words uh, in the text, iniquity, transgression, and sin, they all have their own kind of shade and meaning. 
and so the three words, one is kata, which is sin. The other is transgression, which is pesha. And the other one is iniquity, which is avon. So let's start with sin. What is it? What is sin? To sin is to fail or to miss the goal or to miss the mark. Imagine an archer that's shooting an arrow and they're trying to hit the bullseye, but they don't hit the bullseye. They miss the mark. What is the mark? What is the goal? What is the, if sin is missing the mark, then what exactly is the mark? The mark is this. Every human is made in the image of God. We miss the mark when we fail to live up to what it means to be human. When we fail at giving God glory in our life, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor that they deserve. Think about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are split up into two halves. The first half is about honoring and loving God. The second half is about honoring and loving other people. And when we fail to do that, we fail to live up. We miss the mark of what it means to be human. The first mention of sin in the Bible is in the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain is told, hey, sin is crouching at the door. You're, you're, you're angry, you're envious, and you better be careful because sin wants to consume you. And of course, we know the story sin does consume him. He ends up killing his brother out of envy. And so sin just talks about this thing in our, that wants to master us and control us and to, to, to keep us from living up to what it means to be someone in the image of God. It's when we miss the mark. The second word is transgression. Okay, this, this word speaks of a betrayal in a relationship with someone. It means when you break trust with somebody. So think about if someone were to come to your house and to, uh, uh, just a random stranger comes and steals something from your house. Now that would be not good. That would be bad. No one would enjoy that. And it's one thing for a stranger to come into your house and to steal your belongings. But it's a totally another thing if it's a neighbor or if it's someone you trusted or it's someone you've had in your home before and you know them and they come and they steal and get something out of your house. Now there was a trust that used to be there. You used to trust this person, but now that trust has been shattered. It's someone you should be able to trust, but they let you down. You see, the Bible is one big story about how trust is broken over and over and over again. Israel belonged to the Lord. They belonged to God. They belonged to Yahweh. They promised they would never worship another, but time and time again, they would break trust. They would break faith with Yahweh. You know what? At times we all have broken trust. There are times where we've broken our promises to God. There are times we've told God, oh, I'll never do that again, God, and you do it again. And there's times when we break trust with one another. And, and time after time, we break trust, but Yahweh never breaks trust. He is faithful to the end. He is a trustworthy God, but we break trust often. All right, the last word is iniquity, which means to be bent or to be crooked. Something that is meant to be level or equal. Think about you know, when you use a level on something, we're doing some remodeling in my house right now and I'm getting some new countertops and here's what I've come to realize. My old countertops weren't level. We stuck a level on it and they're about an inch and a half off the mark 
uh, compared to one side or to the other. So we're going to have to level out the cabinets so when the new countertops come in, everything is level. Iniquity is when something is off kilter, when there's a bend or a crookedness. And you see, sin, when we sin on the outside and transgression, when we break trust, the problem is just not an outward problem. The real problem, the real reason we fail is because there's a crookedness on the inside of us. Our lives are crooked. Our hearts are crooked. And because we're crooked on the inside, it leads to crooked lives on the outside. And we have crooked consequences and crooked results. And we're getting to the point now where we call crooked straight. You know, that's like when we try to call what's wrong right and what's right wrong. I mean, that's where we're at. This is where iniquity leads us. And if you just look in the world, you'll see where iniquity and transgression and sin, where they lead. But all of these things are the direct opposite of Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh never misses the mark. Yahweh never breaks trust. He is level and the very standard of what level looks like. I like this quote. It says, thus the New Testament doctrine of forgiveness of sins on which the promise of eternal life so decidedly depends flows from the very nature of God. He does not reluctantly forgive sins against himself and others, but he does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character by which he delights in doing so. So you see, we are full of sin. We're full of iniquity. We're crooked on the inside. There's so much sin that even on the inside, our, our very thoughts and our very heart is wicked and bent towards doing evil. But God is forgiving. Look at what he forgives. And he's not just out there like reluctantly forgiving, but like this writer says, he is eager to forgive these things inside of us. He's eager to forgive us. And man, that is good news today. That God is eager to forgive. But then let's get to this next line, which you may think, okay, here comes, here comes the bad news. He may be eager to forgive, but yet it says that he will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, here's a mistake that you can make. You can think because God is so compassionate, because God is slow to anger, because God is forgiving all our wicked ways, that this means that God just kind of winks at sin. That God is just, he just kind of sweeps sin under the rug and he says, oh, it's just okay. It's okay. There's no big deal. And listen, though God is forgiving, it is not accurate to say that he doesn't care about sin. No, God is going to deal with sin one way or another. Sin will be dealt with. And here's what we all have to realize. There is a price to sin. There is a cost to sin. This is what we often fail to realize about the nature of sin. We think forgiveness from God is just God changing his attitude towards us. Like it means he's not mad at us or bitter towards us or he's not going to shun us because we hurt his feelings. And there is more to that in forgiveness. Listen, sin is costly. It's very costly. Okay, Hypothetically, let's say you let me borrow your car and let's say I wreck your car or I total your car and you can be mad at me and that's you should be mad at me. But if I ask you to forgive me and not to be mad at me anymore, you might do that. OK, you might forgive me. Say, Chad, I forgive you. I'm not mad at you. We all make mistakes, right? 
Okay, we all make mistakes. But at the end of the day, even though you're not mad at me anymore, you still don't have a car because I totaled it. And there is a cost that you will have to pay or you will have to absorb. Someone's going to have to pay for a new car. Someone's going to have to pay for the car to be replaced or to get a new one. And you see, sin, although God can forgive us and he's not mad at us and we repent, he says, it's okay. You know what? Sin is going to cost somebody something. Sin sends shockwaves through the earth. I mean, it wreaks havoc. It causes great destruction. And someone's going to have to deal with the destruction. And, that's, and Jesus came to deal with the destruction. This is what John says about Jesus. It says, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is going to deal with sin. He is one day going to fully and finally eradicate sin. And it started on the cross when he came. You see, Jesus is not casual about sin. He's going to deal with it. He's going to take it away. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus as the lamb, that's an Old Testament idea. Remember in the Old Testament, you remember this, when you sin, you would have to bring a sacrifice to the temple because your sin had to be dealt with. There's a heavy price for sin. You would actually have to take your hand and place it on the head of that lamb. And then the lamb would die. It would be sacrificed. And you're basically transferring your sin, your mistake, onto the innocent, spotless lamb. And that lamb would die so that you could continue to live on in the favor of God. It was a substitution. The lamb was substituted on your behalf. And so in the Old Testament, year after year, lamb after lamb, sin was covered over, but it was never completely blotted out. Because an animal cannot completely blot out the sin of a human. It's not a true substitution. It's only a stopgap until the real substitution could come. And Jesus came. And Jesus' blood and sacrifice was so powerful that he only had to do it once. But once was enough to deal with your sin and my sin, your iniquity and your transgression and your sins. And what we can do today is we can take our wickedness and our transgressions and our sins and we can come to the cross. We can put our hands on the Lamb of God and transfer those things to him and let Jesus be our substitute. Forgiveness is available today. And it's not, forgiveness is not just you having the slate wiped clean. Forgiveness also involves Jesus remaking your heart, taking the crooked things inside of you and making them right. We don't have to live slave to our sin. We don't have to live in bondage to the things around us. We can have victory over sin. We can live up to what it means to be in the image of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness is available today. But you got to want forgiveness. You have to desire to be forgiven. And the only way you're going to desire to be forgiven is if you realize truly how sinful you really are. Fleming Rutledge says this, The true sign of the grace of God at work is the confession of a redeemed sinner. If you think you don't need anyone to die for your sins, then you don't need Christianity. Or rather, you think you don't, which is another matter. You want to know the number one thing that keeps people from heaven? It's not some vile, crazy sin. Jesus' blood is powerful enough to take care of that sin. 
The thing that keeps people out of heaven is this, believing in their own goodness, thinking they don't need a lamb, thinking they don't need a substitute, thinking their sins are not really that bad. You see, when you continue in things that are wrong and you think God is okay with it, what you need to know is he's not. That sin is costly. That sin, you will pay a price for sin, man. But Jesus died for sin. This was his mission. The whole reason he came. Paul tells us, he says, this is a trustworthy, deserving, full of acceptance saying that Christ Jesus came into the world. The reason he came was to save sinners of whom I am foremost. A lot of people these days using Jesus' words, talking about what would Jesus do, but they deny the reality of why he came. He came for the sick. He came for the sinner. And if you don't think you're sick, and if you don't think you're a sinner, then he can't help you. This is who he came for. He can deal with our sin, but you've got to come to the recognition of just how bad off you are without his help. Let's move on to the next saying. It says that he visits the iniquity on the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. And you're like, whoa, what does that mean? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And I'm going to borrow from Mark Comer here because he really breaks this down. And I think it's really good. What does this scripture mean? He gives us three layers to this scripture. And Here is what it means. First, number one, is that your sin has an immediate consequence that is beyond you. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of people think, well, I can just sin and nobody will know about my sin. I can do this thing. Nobody will know and it just affects me. And that is a complete lie. Your sin has a direct effect on those who are around you in your world and in your atmosphere. Your sin doesn't just affect you. It affects the people around you. I personally believe that we are now reaping the fruit of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. The problems that we're having in our society today is from the, I believe, from the sexual revolution, from free love. Look where love has gotten most of us, free love, right? Most of us in the room, most of us listening today, you probably come from some sort of broken home or broken family. Why does it happen that way? Because you can't just love whoever you love whenever you want to and do things in an unbiblical fashion and it not have effects on the people around you, man. Your sin has consequences. So listen, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, listen to me. Your sin does not just affect you, but it will have a direct effect and impact your children. If you're an alcoholic and your house is unstable and the environment is off, guess what? That doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone in your household. It affects your children. They're going to grow up with that anxiety and fear on the inside of them because of your sin. Okay? We all live downstream from someone else's sin. So your, your, your sin has an immediate consequence, but not just immediate consequence. Your sin actually has generational consequences. Pastor Larry Stocksdale showed a study one time of a genealogy of two different men who lived around the same time uh, in the 1700s. One was godly and served the Lord. The other one was a notorious criminal. One was Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, a great man of God. Another one was who lived around the same time as Jonathan Edwards, born around the same time, named Max Jukes. 
and they did a study of their generations. They did a study of their genealogy, and what they found was pretty astounding. First, the generations of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a godly man. He lived for the Lord, and they went and they looked through his lineage, and here's what they found. They found one U.S. vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. Okay, that's Jonathan Edwards. But now, Max Jukes, a notorious criminal, they went and they looked through his genealogy, and here's what they found. Seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 other convicts, 310 paupers, 440 who were physically wrecked by addiction to alcohol. Of the 1,200 descendants that were studied, 300 of Max Jukes' generations died prematurely. Okay, listen, your sin does not just affect you and your immediate home, but your sin, I'm telling you, there are descendants that are downstream from you and your sin and the consequences of your sin can be passed on from generation to generation to generation. Okay, we must take sin. We must take it and realize the effects it has on the world around us. We can't be light on it. All right, here's the last thing about this. Sin will keep running its course until someone stops it. The cycle of sin and the punishment for that sin will continue until someone says, someone in your family's got to stand up and say, enough is enough. Enough with the alcohol. Enough with the drugs. Enough with the sleeping around. Enough with the pornography. It's going to stop here with me. I'm not passing it on to my descendants. Ezekiel 18.1, Ezekiel gets a word from the Lord for the children of Israel. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall be no more used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So let me give a little background to what's going on here. The children of Israel were in exile. Remember, they had been removed from Israel. They were in exile for 70 years. The reason they were in exile is because after repeated warnings from God, after they worshiped other gods and sinned every type of way you can sin, God sent prophets to them, repent or else something bad's going to happen. They wouldn't repent. They refused to repent. And God sent them into exile. But while they were in exile, they didn't really change. They didn't really repent they didn't really come to the conclusion about their sin and change their ways. They continued in the sin of their fathers. And they started complaining and they, and they were saying, why are we still being punished for the sins of our parents? But here's what Yahweh says. He says, you're not being punished for the sin of your parents. You're being punished because you continue in the sin of your parents. If you will just repent, I will send life and not death. I will, I will change. Someone's got to repent. Someone's got to change. Someone in the family line's got to say, enough is enough. And you could be that person today. 
you could be the one who stops the generational cycles of sin in your family. Maybe you were dealt a bad hand because of the sins of your father and mother. That's really unfair and unfortunate. But you know what? You can make a decision today that that's going to stop with you. Just because your grandfather was an alcoholic and your father was an alcoholic doesn't mean that you have to be and you have to send that on to the rest of your family. There can be freedom today. I really believe it. You need to fight for that freedom. Let the cross and the blood of Jesus change you. Start a legacy of generational blessings for your family. Do you notice that God's blessing lasts for thousands of generations, but God's, the iniquity that he visits only lasts to the third and the fourth. You're, if, 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 if we're talking numbers here and a generation is 15 years, that means his blessing lasts for 15,000 years, while the iniquity, visiting the iniquity, only lasts for 45 years or 50 years. Look at the difference, 45 and 50 years versus 30,000 or 15,000, okay? God's blessing will outlast. His mercy is greater than his judgment and it will outlast iniquity and, and his goodness and mercy are gonna outlast and outweigh sin every time. So as we end here today, I want us to just to take a look at the cross. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Yahweh is so forgiving. He's so good. What are we going to do with our iniquity, our crookedness? What are we going to do with the iniquity that weighs us down and keeps us hunched over? What are we going to do? We're going to give it to Jesus. We're going to transfer it to him. Jesus, he takes the iniquity off our backs and he puts it on himself on that cross. And the Bible says even that our iniquities crushed him. He let our iniquity crush him. What are we going to do with our transgression? We've broken our promises to each other. We've broken trust with people, even those we love. We've broken trust with the Lord time and time again. How can we regain that relationship with God once we've broken faith with him? We let Jesus be the bridge that rebuilds that relationship. Jesus never breaks trust. He's faithful to the end. We let him be our righteousness. What are we going to do with our sin, with the ways we haven't measured up? We're going to allow Jesus to take our sin upon himself. He takes the ways in which we fail to live up to the image of God. And he lived life to the fullest and faithful to that image of God. He offers us his life. He gives us his own life. He gives his up so we can have it. We end today with Isaiah 53. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned to everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the brokenness, the crookedness of us all. Jesus, we thank you today for the cross. We thank you that you're our substitute. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to deal with our sin ourselves. We can bring it to you and you will deal with it. And so, Lord, I just pray that every generational curse would be stopped and there would be generational blessing on the families of the crossing. Let us stand up to the cycles of sin and say no more in our family line. No more divorce. No more alcoholism. No more addictions, Lord. We just be, let us be the people 
that stand up and say, no more. We're going to have a legacy of generational blessing. We thank you, God, that you're full of compassion, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness today. And we thank you that we see this come to a head on the cross of Jesus Christ. We bless your name today. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, hopefully that didn't end like the Titanic for you. <laughs> hopefully that's a good ending. And uh, church, we love you right here, 9 and 11 o'clock live or 10 a.m. on virtual church. We'll see you soon.